You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I don't follow this Donald J. Trump person on Twitter, but somehow his tweets are always winding up in my timeline anyway. Donald Trump is that guy who's married to that woman who heads up that campaign to encourage people to be kinder to each other on Twitter. He's that guy who kicked off his weekend mocking a teenage girl's disability on Twitter and ended his weekend mocking a 79-year-old woman's age on Twitter. That guy? And that woman he's married to? That woman who heads up that campaign to encourage people to hashtag be best on social media? She didn't have a problem with her husband mocking that teenage girl, according to a statement released by the office of the first lady. Oh, that guy she's married to is the fucking president somehow. The first lady didn't have a problem with her husband mocking that teenage girl on Twitter because that teenage girl was asking for it. Greta Thunberg had it coming, said the first lady, because Greta Thunberg had opinions in public about the survival of the planet that she happens to live on. Also this weekend... The first lady's husband got mad at Time Magazine for naming Thunberg person of the year and not him. And so the president of the United States photoshopped his head onto the body of that teenage girl and named himself person of the year because that's something adult men do. And the first lady, the anti-bullying campaigner who blew her stack when someone mentioned her teenage son's name in front of a live microphone less than a week before, Baron, 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 she had nothing to say. About that either, about that Photoshop job. Because let's face it, the first lady, a birther from way back, is just as big a piece of shit as her husband is. Anyway, a lot of Donald Trump's tweets have been landing in my Twitter feed for years. And over the last month or so, I've been reading a lot of tweets where he claims that the longer these impeachment proceedings play out... And they didn't drag on nearly as long as I would have liked them to. But the longer the impeachment proceedings dragged on, the president tweeted and tweeted and tweeted, the less popular impeaching him for his crimes became. But a new opinion poll from the fake news media found that 54% of Americans support impeachment. 50% support impeaching and convicting and removing this president from office. And only 41% of Americans oppose impeachment. This poll shocked me, just as it shocked the on-air talent at Fox News, the organization that conducted this poll. I was stunned to see that that's the number because I thought that things were trending away. That was morning show co-host Brian Kilmeade. You'll notice that he lied. He pushed air out of his lungs and through the glottis in his larynx, causing his vocal cords to vibrate, create sounds, sounds he shaped into lies using his lips and tongue. 54% favor impeachment, not 50%. Now, that may not be the biggest lie they've ever told on Fox News, but this dishonest rounding down was repeated by a slew of others on Fox News. So it was an officially state-sanctioned news lie, one meant to take a little bit of the sting out of those poll numbers for the most important Fox viewer out there, the toddler-in-chief, the asshole in Oval, the most powerful crybaby in the world, Donald J. Trump. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know the House impeaches, the Senate convicts and removes from office. Impeachment isn't going anywhere in the Senate, and we kind of knew it wouldn't, not with Mitch McConnell and all those Republican enablers in there. But 70% of Americans believe Trump did something wrong when he attempted to blackmail Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden, and 54% support impeachment. Majority support, and that support is very slowly growing, but growing. 
And if the Senate fails to remove the president in January, impeachment by the House in December makes it likely the American people will remove him from office themselves next November. All right, a quick programming note. The acclaimed Showtime documentary series Couples Therapy is seeking couples in the greater New York City area to participate in a new season. The producers, and full disclosure, I'm one of them, they want to represent a diversity of couples on the show. Gay male couples in the New York area are particularly encouraged to apply. If you and your partner want to work with a brilliant therapist as a part of a documentary series, please go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Again, that's CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Just takes one minute to apply. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, more guests, no ads. Erica Moen from Ojoy oh Sex Toy joins us with some sex toy stocking stuffer recommendations for the holiday season. That's on the magnum. All of that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. So I have a question about a girl I've been in a committed monogamous relationship with for almost a year. Pretty early on in the relationship, I started to see that she was quite insecure, especially about other women. She would get upset about some really innocent interactions with women. For example, I once split a plate of dumplings with a girl during a social event. She wasn't happy. If I were to hang out with female friends, she asked me to notify her about the hangout beforehand. She once showed me a picture of her sister. And I forgot her exact words, but she basically said, Do you think she's prettier than me? And is she more your type? Also, many times while we would be watching something on TV, she would ask me, do you think she's attractive? Do you think she's skinny? If I were to say, yeah, she'd say, well, is she too skinny? Would you date her? Is she your type? Is she too young for you? I would then have to spend the next hour or so explaining myself and telling her how most people on TV are attractive and it's silly to compare yourself to them. And don't get me wrong, I was never drooling over these people on TV. I'm usually just sitting there quietly. She brings it up and my answer is always like, of course they're attractive. It's their job. They're on TV. A few times during our relationship, I'd have to sit down, have a good talk with her about how being so insecure like this is a bit of a turnoff. And after being bombarded with a hundred questions, which often feel a lot like an interrogation, I would be emotionally drained. I'm worried I'm at fault for the insecurities, but I can't pinpoint how. I regularly compliment her. I often tell her she's beautiful and how amazing a person she is inside and out. And she has told me how happy I make her and how much she likes me. We have great chemistry, sex is great, we make a good couple. The insecurities are too much though. I'm constantly answering questions about my exes and these fictional people on TV. Sometimes she asks the same questions about my exes more than once and I have to keep answering and keep repeating myself. Uh, one night while she was asking me about a model we saw on TV, uh, I asked her, do you want me to say she's too skinny? Do you want me to say she's not attractive and not my type? And she pretty much said, yeah. So... I had the last of many talks with her about these insecurities. Uh, she admits asking about the people on TV is dumb, but she keeps doing it. I explained to her maybe I'm not the right guy for her and we should probably break up. She asked for some time to look into her insecurities and I said sure. Two weeks later, she asked to talk and to sum it up, she says she needs the official title of boyfriend and girlfriend to make her feel less insecure. I don't understand. I'm 36. She's 33. Yeah, we're pretty much boyfriend and girlfriend and everything but the name. So what does it matter if there's a title or not? To me, it feels a bit like something somebody in high school would say. Uh, she says because of her background, having lived most of her life in Japan, where the dating culture is more about confessions and asking people to be their boyfriend and girlfriend before they have sex, sometimes even before kissing. And since I didn't do this confession to her, she believes this is what's causing her insecurity. 
I'm not really sure I'm buying it. I can't see how adding the title to a relationship is going to solve anything. What do you think, Dan? Okay, what your girlfriend is doing is stupid and exhausting and disqualifying. This kind of weaponized insecurity is always a bad sign. It's not something that you should tolerate or put up with that constantly grilling you about your ex-girlfriends, constantly grilling you about whether people on television are attractive and constantly demanding this kind of reassurance and bucking up. Exhausting, game-playing, not in good working order when someone arrives with this defect and should be returned to the lot so that they can work on that before they get into another relationship. All that said, committed, monogamous, year-long relationship, she's your fucking girlfriend. What the hell else is she? And your girlfriend is in security issues about whether you're into her or not and denying her that title for the idiotic bullshit reasons that you spin out is only going to exacerbate the insecurity that it's annoying the fuck out of you. Call her your goddamn girlfriend. How is she not your girlfriend? If it's a committed monogamous year long relationship and you're having sex and you're making out and you spend all this time together watching television, you don't have to go to city hall and get a girlfriend license. There's nothing about calling her your girlfriend that prevents you from withdrawing that designation at will at any time. It's not a commitment. It's really just an acknowledgement of a fact on the ground. It is very high school to say, do you want to be my boyfriend? Do you want to be my girlfriend? But in adulthood, when you're hanging out with somebody, when you're dating, when it becomes more than casual, it's not that you ask them to be your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's that eventually you just acknowledge that they are. And a year into a committed monogamous relationship, she's your fucking girlfriend. And if her insecurities are driving you crazy, don't make them worse by playing these semantic games with her about titles. You're not giving her a gong. You're not making her a dame. You're not the queen of fucking England passing out titles on New Year's goddamn day. She's your girlfriend. So call her your girlfriend and then call the question. Call her bluff. She says it's not being acknowledged as your girlfriend, not using these two fucking syllables that's making her feel so insecure. So have a little experiment. Call her girlfriend for the next couple of months. And if it doesn't make any difference, if she gets no better, if she's just as insecure and exhausting emotionally as she was before you started calling her your girlfriend, break the fuck up with her. And then... The next time you're with somebody for more than six weeks, more than three months, and you have a monogamous commitment with that person, she's your fucking girlfriend. And you should start calling her your fucking girlfriend without so much hand-wringing about the granting of titles. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old trans guy living in the Midwest. I've been in a four-year relationship with a girl that I've actually thought about proposing to sometime in the near future. However, I have some hesitations, particularly in regards to the sexual aspect. In the beginning, as with most situations, we had sex more regularly, and as time has gone by, the frequency has diminished. Unfortunately, it has diminished to a concerning amount, in my opinion, as I'm the one who tries to initiate sex the majority of the time. And I would say we now have sex perhaps once every other week. Her reasons are varied, whether it be that she is feeling unwell, tired, stressed, etc., and I can't help but feel frustrated as my sexual needs aren't being fulfilled. I want to remain faithful to her, 
but I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought about fulfilling those sexual needs outside of the relationship. I've discussed the possibility of an open relationship with her due to these concerns, but she's admitted that she would become jealous and that she isn't necessarily interested in being non-monogamous herself. I'm lucky in that the counselor I'm currently seeing is happy to see us for couples counseling in addition to my individual therapy with him, but I wanted to see if I could get your perspective and advice on this situation too. Is it possible to continue the relationship by fulfilling my sexual needs with other people besides her at least some of the time when she is showing concerns of jealousy and interest? Sure, it's possible to get your sexual needs met outside the relationship, but at this stage of the relationship, you're going to want her buy-in. You're going to want to craft, negotiate an ethically non-monogamous arrangement with your girlfriend, this girlfriend that you are not going to propose to until you've worked this out. This kind of shit does not get better, does not typically work itself out after marriage. What you've arrived at is a kind of place of sexual incompatibility around, around frequency, around libido. Assuming that your girlfriend hasn't lost interest in you sexually, and that's something she needs to be honest with you about. Assuming that this is her libido set point in a long-term committed relationship, she's interested in sex roughly twice a month with her committed partner. If that's not enough sex for you, you guys have to figure out what the accommodation is going to be. Will that be, if she insists on monogamy, some assisted masturbation for you where she participates, where not a lot is required of her, but she participates, she helps to stimulate you, maybe she holds you or talks dirty to you and you kind of quickly crank one out every once in a while in between your full-blown sex sessions, or will there be, at your insistence, if that's not good enough, that accommodation, a little assisted masturbation in between full-blown sex sessions, if that's not good enough for you, will there be an accommodation that she's willing to make that allows for you to have sex with others that would require her to deal with and address her jealousy? And if she can't do that, if she can't see herself getting there, and most people in open relationships have to process and deal with jealousy and not just at the start of the relationship, jealousy you know, we experience jealousy in our relationships, whether they're open or closed at sometimes seemingly regular intervals. Sometimes people feel a little jealous because they need their partner to pay a little bit of attention to them and it just kind of rises up, needs to be addressed, even in the context of a healthy, functional, open or closed relationship. But if she can't get there, if non-monogamy isn't something that she could see herself doing and you can't live with twice a month or less, if the drop-off continues over time, then what you know about each other, what you've realized over the course of this four-year relationship is that you're fundamentally, basically sexually incompatible and you are going to have to then do the right, loving, considerate, compassionate thing for each other and part and break up from a place of you know, a kind of sad, loving acknowledgement that you're not right for each other rather than marry, commit, and things continue to get worse and worse and worse until the whole thing explodes and there's no way for you to remain in each other's lives as exes and friends. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old cis white female here. And about one year ago, I relocated to Seattle from Florida with my boyfriend of about four years which has exacerbated a lot of our pre-existing problems surrounding the monogamy polyamory spectrum. 
So moving across the country to a big city was pretty isolating for us. The way he has coped has been by burying himself in his work. He has a lot of um, building projects that he does for fun and takes a lot of surf trips to the coast. I, on the other hand, have coped by trying to get out there more, to go out, to meet new people. And I like going up into the mountains as much as possible. Uh, despite these differences, we still have a pretty great and satisfying sex life. And we still have some shared dreams of a future together. But the longer we've been here, we're finding less and less activities that we still enjoy together. Something that I've brought up since the very beginning of our relationship is polyamory, uh, something that I've always gravitated towards. We got together when I was just 22, and I still feel like I have a lot to explore and learn in terms of my sexuality. The longer we've been together, the more clear he has become about needing strict monogamy in order to feel harmonious with himself. He feels like he's found the one and would feel, quote, hurt and disoriented if he had to share me. I can't help but feel like he wants to possess me. If he loves me and wants me in his life, wouldn't he want to do the things that would make me happy? Conversely, how can I tell if I'm wanting to be polyamorous and create a hinge account and do all these things for the right reasons? Is polyamory a cop-out for doing real work on our relationship? Uh, side note, I have also suggested uh, things like threesomes and sex clubs to him, which have both kind of been shot down by him. Um, we've had a few threesomes that he hasn't ended up enjoying because he gets so nervous that he can't really stay hard and just like a bunch of performance anxiety surrounding that. So he doesn't really want to do any more of those. And then as far as sex clubs, he was totally appalled by that idea and would just hate for other people to see me naked and that sort of thing. So with that all being said, ultimately, I can still see myself being with this man and having a stable and possibly monogamous relationship. But it's something that feels distant, like maybe five, ten years from now. For right now, I feel like I'm wasting my useful, explorative energy on trying to squash myself into something I'm not quite ready for. Is this something that I should hold out for this future or are we doomed? Is this the beginning of the end or is this something that we can both learn to grow within? If you love me and want me in your life, wouldn't you want to do the things that make me happy is kind of a double-edged sword. It kind of cuts both ways. There are things you want to do that he doesn't want to do. And you're standing there saying, well, if you love me and wanted me to be happy, wouldn't you want to do these things that make me happy? But he's standing there saying the same things. If you loved me and wanted me to be happy, wouldn't you, I guess, not want to do the things that you want to do that make me unhappy? Basically, you two are sexually incompatible at this stage of life. And I would encourage you to get out of this relationship now to part, as I told the previous caller, to part now calmly in a loving way that acknowledges that you guys have grown apart sexually, that your sexual goals and his sexual goals aren't in alignment, at least where you're at right now at this stage of life. And you're young and he's young and there's nothing to say that you couldn't circle back in five or ten years. You might be in a different place in five years and want monogamy. He might be in a different place in five years and be more comfortable with an open relationship. But you want out. It's very clear from your tone 
when you say, oh, I can see myself being with this man, you sound like you can see yourself being executed in the morning. You can see yourself up there on the gallows. You don't sound real excited about being with this man. And so you have my permission, if that's what you were seeking, to end this relationship for this reason. Sexual compatibility is important. It sounds like you guys are emotionally compatible, but it also sounds like socially you are not on the same page there either. This is a classic case of getting together in your early 20s and growing apart and being then sad because, you know, you're going to lose this connection, this history, this intimacy, this familiarity, this comfort that you have with each other and take in each other. Letting that go is scary. But the discomfort of trying to make this relationship work when you both know that it's not working. It's not working for you sexually. He knows it's not working for you sexually. And there's a price of admission you're both demanding from each other here that neither of you wants to pay. And so I'm sorry to say that you need to end it. You need to get out of this relationship. And the sooner you do, the likelier you are to get out as friends. The longer you let this go on, knowing that you're doomed, the likelier it is to end badly. And with anger and confrontation and the kind of shit show that makes it impossible for you guys to circle back after six months or a year with no contact and establish a friendship. Remember what you liked enough about each other to have been in each other's lives for that four years that you were together and worked to want to at least see each other every once in a while and hang out and still be intimates, if not intimate. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old male straight in the West and sort of been sexually repressed for all my life. 2019 was the year I lost my virginity and I've been with that partner ever since. And I guess I'm sort of having trouble expressing my feelings, uh, my sexual interests and feelings about everything um, to them. I love sex, I love sex constantly, but I guess I'm just having trouble conveying that to my partner and it's causing trouble for our relationship. And I guess I really don't know what to do about that. Um, I come from a religious background and I'm sure that there's some things, you know, inviting about that that are a problem. But I'm just wondering if what ways I can go about um, breaking through the past and help convey and be honest in the future. There's this bit of advice that all the people out there in the advice racket give to people who want to have conversations with their teenagers with their adolescents about sex, necessary conversations about safety, about birth control, about consent, that these conversations are often very difficult for parents to have with their children face to face because there's that repression, that hesitancy, that that awkwardness, right? Trying to talk about these things with your kids makes your kids feel awkward. You pick up on how awkward it's making your kid feel. Maybe you feel awkward and the awkwardness just metastasizes, reaches a kind of an awkward critical mass and the conversation shuts down. And the bit of advice that's really effective is to have those conversations at a time when you can't look at each other's faces, to have those conversations in the car when you're driving somewhere with your eyes straight ahead and their eyes straight ahead and maybe their eyes on their phone every once in a while and to have that conversation at that time. There's something about locking eyes. So you should take that advice. 
It might be really helpful for you to have this conversation with your partner about your sexual interests and to take the risk of having this conversation, cognizant of the fact that if you don't risk having this conversation, your relationship's going to fall apart because it sounds like your partner is unhappy that you aren't able to communicate with her. So get in a car, drive somewhere, and open your mouth and start saying things at a time and in a place where you don't have to look at each other. If that feels too forced, if that feels too fake, create an email account that only exists for you to open up with her about your sexuality and about your sexual interests. And she should create an email account that only exists for her to receive those emails and respond to them and have the conversation that way at a bit of a distance with a bit of remove. But you need to tell yourself that the failure to have this conversation is a bigger risk than having this conversation ever could be. The failure to open up about who you are sexually and what your sexual interests are really imperils your relationship. There's something about you know, the way some of us are brought up about sex and to feel inhibited about sex and you know, the, the sometimes messaging we get from our parents, whether it's explicit or implicit, whether what they told us or how they behaved about sex, communicates to us that this is just not something that you should talk about, that a good person talks about, or that you can never then be comfortable talking about. But nothing undermines someone's connection with a partner that they want to have sex with, who wants to have sex with them more than the inability to communicate. And if face-to-face conversations, if pillow talk communications are impossible for you, at least now, find a workaround, get in the car, drive someplace, have the conversation then, create an email account, pour your heart out via email, use your phone voice memo app and record something that then you send to your partner. And if you tell them something about who you are sexually, this is always the concern people have. If I really open up, they're going to reject me. Well, if you tell them who you are sexually and they reject you, they weren't the right sexual partner for you. It's really about sorting this kind of opening up. You want, you know, at the beginning, maybe you're a little bit more cautious about opening up about who you are entirely sexually because you want them to feel safe and comfortable with you. And, you know, you don't go from making out to like all my craziest kinks in the first 10 minutes. You roll that out slowly, but eventually you want to be with somebody who knows who you are fully sexually. So they have the opportunity to meet, if not all of your needs, enough of your needs that you're content in that relationship and vice versa. You want to be able to do the same for them. That requires conversation. And if you can't do that or don't do that or allow the zap your parents put on your head as a child to prevent you from doing that, you're going to end up rejected just the same. The relationship is going to fall apart. So the thing that you're trying to avoid by not having these conversations, rejection, you're going to get to in the end anyway if you don't have these conversations. So find a way to have this conversation. And you know what? You were able to call into this show and say your piece knowing that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would be listening to you. If you could say what you needed to say to me with lots of other people overhearing it, you can find a way and find a time and find a place to say what you need to say to your partner. Hey, Dan, 25-year-old white guy here. Uh, I've been dating my girlfriend for some time now and have created a great bond with her five-year-old daughter. My partner and I plan on moving in together about June of next year. It's the time that works best for my partner's job, her daughter's school, and just saving money. Uh, My question is regarding the little girl's biological dad. So throughout her five years of life, uh, he's just been in and out of it. 
He averages about 25 to 30 days until he finally attempts to even reach out and ask about his own daughter. Uh, and it can even be longer until he actually sees her. Uh, when he does see her, it's usually never having one-on-one time with her. There's always his parent, friends, or girlfriend around, and he doesn't give her much attention. He also says bad things about his, about her mother. The little girl tends to start exhibiting some bad behavior after she gets back, such as like hitting people or just being kind of mean and rude. And he also said one time to his daughter that uh, she can't love both of us meaning she can't love both me and him. So the girl does obviously love her dad and likes to see him and wants to talk to him, but he appears to not really care a whole lot about her. And it certainly has to be hurting her emotionally and overall psychologically to have his this uh, semi-absent father trying to come into her life at random and other times it's not really caring. So me and my girlfriend really don't know what to do about this. Should we be more proactive and just say that, you know, hey, you need to step up or fuck off already? Or should we just kind of wait until things react more naturally, like when we move in in June and I become more of a constant in this girl's life? It's really concerning that after these visits with her biological father, her neglectful kind of shitty sounding biological father, that this girl, your girlfriend's daughter hits people, acts out, seems unhappy. You say that these visits are not solo, that they're in some way supervised, that he's with his parents when he sees her typically. And that's a comfort, but you know, abuse runs in families and he's a shitty person and he came from somewhere and maybe he came from shitty people. And I am concerned and, it wouldn't be your place to draw the child out about what's going on during these visits, but I am concerned about what's happening on these visits. And if the girl isn't seeing a a, a counselor with her mother, perhaps she should. Sounds like the girl's mother has primary, if not sole custody of the child. And that's good. I think you don't want to put this girl in a position where she feels torn between loyalty to her mother, loyalty to Loyalty to her mother, affection for this other man who's coming into her life in a kind of parental role, that would be you, and her feelings for her father. And it doesn't sound like you want to put her in that position either, but you do need to gently push back in some small way against the lies he's telling this girl, for instance, that he can't love you both. And there are ways to point out gently to a child that something another adult, even a trusted and beloved adult, told them isn't necessarily true. For instance, you could say or her mother could say, and I really think that it's the mother's responsibility here and not yours, should say, well, you have more than one grandparent and you can love more than one grandparent. It's possible to love more than one person. Just like you love me and daddy, it would also be possible for you to Love Paul. That doesn't make Paul your daddy. It just makes Paul another adult in your life that you trust and love. Your girlfriend should take the lead there. As for what to do when you move in, you know, telling this dude to step up or fuck off, I don't think that you should provoke that kind of confrontation because it doesn't sound like you want him to play a larger role in her life. Although it would be painful for her, for him to be more absent than he already is, perhaps it would be better for her mental health and her sense of security and safety if he did 
wind up absenting himself more than he already has. And that's typically how these things go over time. The absent parent, the neglectful parent, perhaps in the short run when a stepfather or boyfriend who may become stepfather shows up, may up their game a little bit. The competitive sense may kick in, and obviously it has if he's telling her she can't love you and him at the same time, and he may be a bit more present. But you know, water seeks its own level, and people are who they are, and he will revert to form, which is to probably be less of a presence over time. And challenging him, telling him to step up or fuck off, may prolong the period where he is stepping up. And it might not be in your best interest and your girlfriend's best interest or this child's best interest to provoke him in such a way where he steps up his game, particularly if what his game involves is spending time with this girl. And then this girl, after spending time with him, is unhappy, moody, or violent. You don't want him to step up his game. You want him to fade away. You want him to be less of a presence. So don't throw down the gauntlet with the girl's biological father. So just step up. Be a loving adult in her life in a parental role without putting her in the middle as he has attempted to do. Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered woman in her 30s living in the middle of the country and I have a wedding question. My partner's child lives with the baby mama full time in another state. We are getting married in July and of course his child is expected to be a big part of the ceremony. However, my future mother-in-law is a narcissistic sociopath who regularly plays my partner and his ex against each other so that she can get as much time with her grandchild as possible. We have been working with my partner's ex and my future mother-in-law to organize the travel for my soon-to-be stepkid the week of the wedding. My partner's mom has insisted on flying with the kid and housing the kid and has been caught this week lying to the ex about our wants and desires and lying to my partner about the ex's wants and desires. To top it off, she is insisting on flying in, in the Thursday before the wedding, which is on a Saturday, and flying out the following day. My partner has expressed that this means he will get very little time with his kid and that he desires to have as much time as possible. Of course, his narcissist mom could give two shits. So there are several issues with this. First and foremost, my partner and I would really like to have a full week with the said kid before I marry into the family and become a stepmom. Since we live in different states, he doesn't get to spend a lot of time with his kid, and any extra time is more valuable than gold. The kid is at the age where they grow like weeds, and I would like time here to make sure the shoes and outfit fit correctly. I want to have my future stepkid's hair tested that week, and I thought it would be fun to do a mani-pedi trip just the two of us before the big day. Lastly, we are going to the courthouse on Thursday to get our marriage license before the wedding ceremony, and we really want the kid there. I want to call my partner's ex and explain that the timeline set out by my mother to, mother-in-law-to-be is unrealistic and not long enough. And I would offer any negotiable options in order to make her feel okay about the kid coming out here earlier without grandma. I asked my partner if he would be okay with this, and he said no. He thought it would give the ex and mother-in-law excuses to make the situation worse than it already is. His feelings are crushed by his mom's behavior, and he has voiced that he doesn't want to take any time off of work the week of the wedding and isn't excited about the wedding or even the honeymoon one bit. He is in a downward spiral of negativity, which is what typically happens when his mom behaves this way. So Dan, besides wanting to call his mom and tell her what a cunt she is, what can I do? I still really want to call the ex because I feel like we have a good relationship and that she'll listen. But I'm also afraid of making the kid feel like they're being pulled between the wants of several different adults in their life 
and that any choice they make is going to make someone upset. My mother-in-law emotionally abuses anyone who goes against her will, including her grandkid. Do I reach out to the kid instead and tell them all the things we want to do with them that week to help them decide? Do I suck it up and yet again witness this horrid woman do her best to further drive a wedge between the love of my life and his child for her own selfish reasons? Do we uninvite his parents to the wedding so she can't go through with this bullshit? I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to grant that your husband's mother, your future mother-in-law, is a narcissistic sociopath, a destroyer of worlds, who sows discord wherever she goes and drives wedges into every relationship, and that she is in cahoots with your future husband's ex-wife to somehow limit the time that their daughter can spend at his wedding, your wedding, just for shits and giggles, just to destroy worlds, just to be a narcissistic sociopath and create trouble for fun. I'm going to grant you that. But I'm still going to encourage you to maybe call the fucking wedding off if your husband-to-be is not looking forward to the wedding because he hates his mommy so much and not looking forward to the honeymoon because he's upset about all the drama and the tug of war over this kid who I assume is a girl. You just call the kid the kid the whole time. I assume it's a girl if you're taking it out for a manny and a petty. That's not something I hope you would impose on a little boy in advance of the wedding and you're going to test hair. Sounds like something you would do with a girl that you want to use as a prop in your wedding, not a boy you wanted to use as a prop in your wedding. Anyway, if your husband-to-be, if your fiancé is so upset about all of this drama that he doesn't even want to fucking marry you anymore. Why are you talking about this marriage like it's going to happen? And there's a way to sidestep all of this drama, not just disinvite your mother-in-law to your wedding, but disinvite fucking everybody to the wedding, including the kid. Fucking elope. You don't have to have a big wedding. And you seem a little emotionally invested on the idea of marrying into this family and stepping into this role as stepmother to this child who lives in another state that you aren't going to be actually playing much of a parental role in the life of this child as her father lives with you, the fiance and potentially future new wife in another state. So your desire to have this full week with this child, your sort of obsessive focus on this kid as a, a trophy to be wrestled from the ex-wife in advance of this wedding. It just seems a little off. It seems a little odd. Now, maybe this is my own childhood shit surfacing, listening to your question. You know, my parents divorced when I was a teenager. It was incredibly traumatic and my father quickly remarried. And I was one of the kids at that wedding when my father remarried. And it was a really weird position to be in. And I wouldn't have wanted as, you know, I was there and happy for my father and I love my stepmother and she's been great for my dad and uh, they're still together decades later. It was obviously the person he should have been with just as my mother's second husband was the person she should have been with. It's one of the reasons why I always say that a relationship can end and two people can survive it and go on and get new partners and all those relationships could have been successes is because of the example of my parents. That said, I still felt incredibly awkward at that wedding. And I wouldn't have wanted to be a ring bearer or an usher. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the spotlight at my dad's second wedding. And it would have been 
cruel, dense, emotionally clueless, even abusive of my father to insist that I play that role. And he didn't. He didn't ask that of any of us because he was sensitive to the fact that we might have some conflict and might have some ambiguous feelings about his second marriage. You need to back the fuck off this kid. If this child's mother in consultation with this child's grandmother has decided that it would be better for this kid not to spend a full week with you and her father, but to still be at the wedding and still be a part of the wedding, you're just going to have to respect that. The mother that you're going to have to cooperate with if you want to have this child in your life or create room in your marriage for this child to be a part of her father's life going forward, the the mother is someone that you're going to have to have a cooperative relationship with. And so you're not going to want to contest this. You're not going to want to make your wedding about many petties for this kid and how much time you get to test this kid's hair and how much time she spends with you after the wedding. The wedding isn't about the kid. The wedding is about you and your relationship with her father. Focus on that. It's concerning that you want to jump on the phone with this kid's mother, with the grandmother, with the kid herself. Back the fuck off. I would, if I were in your shoes, call the wedding the fuck off. Literally, if my if I was marrying somebody and he told me he wasn't looking forward to the marriage or wasn't looking forward to the honeymoon because of all the drama and conflict, I would call the fucking thing off. That's not a good start for that kind of commitment. That's not a good start to a wedding. Not going to be a happy day. It's going to be a shit show if you can't let this go. And I would encourage you to let it go. I would encourage you to let the whole fucking guest list go. And for the two of you, if you still want to get married, to elope. And that was me granting you the premise of your question that it's the mother-in-law who's the problem here. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a little bit of a predicament. I am having a commitment ceremony with my boyfriend and I went to start the guest list. And long story short, my boyfriend's um, step-parent excommunicated my boyfriend's step-sibling when that person came out as gay and moved in with their partner a couple years ago. We have, of course, remained very good friends with them and supported them um, as best we could because I know it's painful and I don't think that it's right. So I started putting together my guest list for my party and I received a call from my boyfriend's parent saying that their spouse, uh, my boyfriend's step-parent, would not attend if we uh, invite their child and their child's partner. So I don't really know what to do because um, obviously my my boyfriend's parent needs to be there. So if I say, screw it, I'm having them, and his step-parent chooses not to come, then maybe his parent will have to not come. So that would be awful for him. Um, But also, I really just don't think that it's right to not invite this person and their partner because we love them and they deserve to be there. So I really just don't know what to do. You're having a commitment ceremony? Really? Is that a thing that people still do? Are you getting married? Are you having a commitment ceremony? I'm sorry to, to, to bump on that, but you rarely hear that expression anymore. We used to have commitment ceremonies in gay land and lesbian land and same-sex relationship land. Not everybody in same-sex relationships is gay or lesbian. There's bisexual people out there in same-sex relationships. But, you know, in the way back when, before same-sex marriage was legal in all 50 states, 
before same-sex marriage was legal anywhere, the gays talked about their commitment ceremonies because we couldn't call them weddings. We called them commitment ceremonies. It's just really odd to hear someone in an opposite-sex relationship drawing up the guest list for their commitment ceremony. Haven't heard that expression in forever. All right, going to set that aside. Going to focus on the problem at hand. Your boyfriend's mom is married to an asshole. Your boyfriend's stepdad disowned one of his kids, one of your boyfriend's step-siblings, when they came out. And you are in contact with that step-sibling. You've loved and supported that step-sibling, even though your boyfriend's father disowned him, wants nothing to do with him now that he's out and living with his partner. So what do you do? Well, you invite the step-sibling and you tell the step-parent that he's invited to, but if he doesn't want to come, that he will not be fucking missed if he's going to play those kinds of games. You take the side of the loving person that you love and not the hateful piece of shit that your future mother-in-law's marriage imposes on you and drags into your life. And you focus on the future. It always really freaks me out when old people who are going to be dead soon try to dictate to younger people who what other younger people may not be at their wedding because old people are going to be dead soon. Whereas you, and so fuck those relationships. They're going to end at some point relatively soon anyway. Whereas the relationships you have with your contemporaries, with people like your boyfriend's step sibling, they're your future. Those are the people who are going to be there for you down the road. Whereas the asshole stepfather is somebody whose funeral you're going to get to go to get to go to emphasis on get at some point in the future, maybe the very near future. And so fuck that relationship to hell with that relationship. You want to cultivate the relationship with the people who are going to be with you going forward. And you want to take the side of the person who is wronged here. And that's the step sibling. And if your boyfriend's mother doesn't come to your commitment ceremony or wedding or whatever it is, because she married an asshole. Well, then she made her choice. And that's sad. But if she wants to miss her kid's wedding or commitment ceremony because she married an asshole, then she has to live with that. Just like she has to live with that asshole. It always kind of amazes me when old people, you know, parents, grandparents, dictate like this. Say you can't have these young people, your contemporaries at your wedding or, or we won't come. Because to me, that seems an easy choice. Unless like mom and dad are paying for the wedding because you're not a grown-up. It seems to me an easy choice to pick your contemporaries who are loving and have done nothing wrong and indeed have been wronged by the grandparents or parents over your asshole grandparents or parents who are ordering you to compound or participate in their wrong or to solve the wound that they opened up in their own kid, which is what this stepdad is asking your future commitment partner or husband to do. He disowned his child. He wants this child excluded from your wedding. He wants you two to participate in the disowning, in the casting out. He can't ask you to do that. I mean, he can, he has. You can't agree. You can't allow him to force you to do that. What you're being asked to do is bar someone from your wedding who you like, whose company you enjoy, or, and here's the consequence, some asshole isn't going to be at your wedding. Some asshole, somebody you don't like, someone who's a fucking jerk, isn't going to be there scarfing down your food and drinking your booze and ruining your day. Well, fucking Yahtzee. We should all have somebody that we can invite to our wedding that our asshole relatives hate so much they won't come to our wedding. You're lucky. 
this disowned step sibling is magic. Invite the disowned step sibling. And the bonus is the asshole step parent won't be there. That's a win-win for you. Somebody at your wedding you like, somebody at your wedding you love, somebody not at your wedding you don't like and don't love. You know what to do. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Erica Moen, the cartoonist half of the team behind the weekly comic, Oh Joy Sex Toy, along with her husband, Matthew Nolan. And now the new book that you should get. It's actually a terrific Christmas gift drawn to sex, The Basics, for anybody you know just starting out or anybody you know who started out a long time ago but could use a update or some clues about sex, The Basics. Hey, Erica, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Oh, Joy Sex Toy started out as a comic strip sex toy review column. Isn't that right? Yes, that is correct. And over the years, it sort of broadened its scope to become uh, really a terrific sex education plus sex toy review column. And everyone out there who isn't familiar with it should jump online. Go find Oh, Joy Sex Toy. We have Erica on the show regularly to do sex toy recommendations. And with the holiday season upon us, there are people on your list you might be thinking about buying sex toys for. We wanted Erica to come on with some recommendations. So what do you got for us, Erica? Okay, so I was thinking just as an overall uh, good grab-all gift, uh, Early to Bed, which is a sex store, has a thing called a first-timers kit, colon, classic. And that has a nice little assortment of toys that you can just buy all in one go and it'd make a nice, sweet little gift all on its own. It has a silver bullet and a bunny sleeve and a Gaia Slim and comes with lube. And that just kind of like covers almost all the bases that you need for uh, playing with with your junk, um, aside from any like keenest specific toys. And what does that kit run you if you wanted to get it from early to bed, which is a terrific woman-owned sex toy shop in Chicago with an online presence? It costs $28, which is uh, really good for getting a handful of little toys all together. All right. Anything else? Yeah, actually, I so that one doesn't have any penis-specific toys, and I want to make sure everybody with a penis is covered. So uh, <laughs> her recommendation of my husband, uh, recommending the Tenga Spinner toy, which is a cock sleeve, and it's got this special little coil inside of it that makes it twist around your cock as you pull it up. So it's got like this extra little whoop-de-woo, and um, it costs <laughs> about <laughs> it costs about twenty-eight dollars. And they have a couple different models. Matt's favorite model is the shell. And uh, he, he gave me, accidentally gave me a quote. He said, it doesn't take up the whole apartment like a flashlight does. So um, <laughs> flashlights are <laughs> big luxury penis masturbation toys. They're really fun. He also recommends those as well. But uh, Tanga is more like more for the average size person. And it's a lot more discreet as far as penis sleeves go. Well, and, but um, if you wanted yeah. to hide your flashlight, you could just put a lampshade on top of it and set it on an end table and <laughs> no one will be any the yeah. wiser. No one will know. <laughs> Until they try to turn it on and they realize that there's no bulb. And they turn something else on. <laughs> so the starter kit from early to bed, the Tanga, is that what it's called? Tanga is the company and Spinner is the specific cock sleeve. Hit us with one more. Okay, yes. I, I actually wrote down a handful more. Oh, please so, hit us um, with all of your recommendations. Oh, oh wait. Okay, here I go. Um, everybody should have a bullet vibe, and they kind of start around $10, and they go up to about $30. It's very basic. It's typically a round egg that has a cord that attaches to a remote controller. 
Uh, Early to Bed, again, has a $10 one. If you go to any sex store, though, they're all going to have some version of a bullet vibe or a silver bullet. And then um, for your cock dildo needs, uh, Vix Skin, V-I-X-S-K-I-N. They are just the best when it comes to dildos, especially if you go for one of their dual density dildos. Those are more on the expensive side. It's about $116. The wait, wait, wait. Is my Explain favorite. wait, wait, wait. Oh. Slow down for those of us who aren't up on everything. What's a dual density dildo? What does that mean, dual density? I am so glad you asked. Uh, so you start with on the inside, you've got this really firm core. And then the outside layer is this more softer silicone. So it's got a bit of give to it. It's not just one solid block of cock. It's it kind of, I mean, obviously it's not going to, be a perfect match for a biological cock, but mm-hmm. it just it, it, it's got more give to it. It's firm on the inside, but you can give it a squeeze on the outside. Kind of like a biological cock. Kind of, yeah. It's 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 closer to a biological clock than just a cock. <laughs> <laughs> the ticking of my biological cock. It's booming in my head right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's closer to a, a bio body part than um, just a solid silicone dildo is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, they've got a triple density one that they're just coming out with. It's not available in stores yet, but my friend has one and she let me manhandle it. And like it's got three layers of silicone and on the outside, it's super duper stretchy. And then the middle layer is like, it, it's got the give to it, and then the inside has the firm core, and oh my god, it is luxurious. But it's super duper expensive. It's like two hundred dollars, I think. I, I haven't gotten one for myself yet. And how much is your run of the mill dual density? Run of the mill is about uh, a hundred. It starts at around a hundred five dollars. It goes up to a hundred thirty five, and uh, and yeah, thick skin. And that most quality sex stores carry Vic skin stuff. So you can go anywhere, get well, one. Sometimes people and, balk um, at the, the, the price tag on a more expensive sex toy. But if you invest, you know, if you find a sex toy that really works for you and you invest in the more expensive version of it, the fact that it works for you and it's more expensive means it's going to last longer. And then if you divide the number of uses, if you divide the price by the number of uses, it ends up being a bargain. The cut rate sex toys that fall apart after a few uses, mm. even if you like them, wind up, after you amateurize, the price being more expensive. Yeah. I mean, I've had my bandit dildo for like easily over 10 years. And if you take $116 and you divide it by 10, that's like what I'm paying less than $10 a year for it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely an investment and it definitely pays off. Okay. Anything else? Yes. I have, I have a couple more. I'll speed run them. Uh, well, I guess I already recommended the flashlight, specifically the Sex in a Can series. Uh, they run for $69, which is hilarious. And um, they're a good, um, like, fleshlight average. The general fleshlight model is freaking huge, like we talked about before. And the Sex in a Can series is, um, it's more of an average size. And specifically, the reason why it's called Sex in a Can is because they dress it up like soda or beer or their current model is for loco. Um, but it's, <laughs> so it's kind of more discreet. And it's got a good tight fit on it. If you're worried about mom spotting your flashlight, you could get one of these. But then you have to worry about mom cleaning your room and recycling your flashlight, potentially. (laughs) I think she'll notice when she picks it up and she's like, wow, this four local bottle is really heavy. (laughs) Okay. And And final recommendation is the sex machine, which is that's going to be like a big spender. That's 
$759. Wow. Plus however much shipping from England is. So it's a really big expensive one. But the thing is, you can attach regular dildos to it. And Matt just figured out how to attach his flashlight to it, uh, which he says was super fantastic. So that you cannot get uh, in sex stores. So you can get it from Stockroom and also from their own website, which is S as in Frank dash machine.com. So F machine, F F dash machine.com. But F is in Frank. Yes. And S is in Frank or fucking. And just in general, I really recommend checking out early to bed, Shebop, good vibes, Stockroom, or pleasure chest. They all have really nice websites and they're all real life stores. You can go to if you're in the right town for them. So just look up those names and, and you'll be pointed in the right direction. Erica Moen, the cartoonist half of the team behind the terrific weekly comic Sex Ed, but also Sex Toy Review comic, Oh Joy, Sex Toy, along with her husband, Matthew Nolan. Pick up their new book, Drawn to Sex, The Basics, also makes a terrific gift. Erica, thank you for jumping on the phone today. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old lesbian living in Seattle. I live with my wife of six years, and well, we've been together six years, maybe for one, and my partner of four years. It's been great. It's been really smooth. But for all of the four years that I've been with my partner, it's been just me, my partner, and my wife. There's never been a rule that um, nobody could date anybody else. But that's just the way it worked out for various reasons. Now, my partner is dating someone else, and along with the normal feelings of adjusting to having somebody new and our little threesome dynamic, the new person in my partner's life has a problem that is making it hard for me to accept them. They have a medical condition. Uh, They have endometriosal. They have a lot of tissue in their abdomen, and it makes them burp and fart all the time. All the time, just constant burping and farting, and I hate it. I I hate it. Like I really, I just, I hate it. They're a nice person, otherwise. I, for a couple of reasons, haven't been able to really get to know them, and I would really, really, really like to like them. Um, I would like to keep everything going smooth, being social, but I just, I'm having a hard time with the burping and farting, and I don't know how to either address that what even if I have a right to address that and I know that they can't help it because it's a medical issue so help me Dan you are my only hope there's a stage in a relationship where people start burping and farting in front of each other you're gonna have to get to that stage you're gonna have to will yourself to get to that stage perhaps a little quicker than you would normally, than would progress naturally over the course of a relationship. You know, the first three months, six months, sometimes the first decade you're with somebody, you can hold it in, you can excuse yourself, but there comes a moment where you just start farting in front of each other and it's, you know, it's a line you cross and you never go back. So because your wife's new partner has this medical condition, well, you've been hustled to the equator and you're going to have to jump across it a little sooner. You're going to have to will yourself across it. You're going to have to get used to it. What you can ask is for, from your partner, let your wife handle this, just a little consideration for your sensibilities. You understand that it's a medical condition, that they can't help it, but 
to whatever extent they can help it, to whatever extent they can demonstrate that they're taking your feelings into consideration by excusing themselves at moments when they are capable of excusing themselves, by leaving the room sometimes if they need to really let one rip, if they have some degree of control, if they're demonstrating to you that they're deploying that control when and where they can in deference to your delicate sensibilities, that may help you get there, get to that point in the long-term relationship, that point where I assume you're already at with the wife, where you can fart in front of each other and just blot it out, ignore it, shrug it off. It is weird to be around somebody that you've just met and they're burping and farting a lot. That's very weird. But what's not weird is being around someone who burps and farts around you because I assume that your wife burps and farts around you. What's weird is that they're burping and farting around you so soon after meeting you. So get there. Will yourself to get there while asking in return as you will yourself to get there a little consideration when and where possible for your delicate sensibilities. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old woman currently living on the West Coast and I'm calling because – I've kept in touch with one of my college professors ever since I graduated about a decade ago. We email, we discuss books, we always get coffee whenever I'm in his area, and he's played a really big role in helping me into my current career. But when texting about a career update recently, he told me that he's developed feelings for me over the last few years, and he wanted to know if these feelings are reciprocated. I did feel a terrible sense of loss, and I kind of freaked out when I learned about his romantic interest in me, but on the other hand, I'm very intellectually attracted to this person, and I've always been bored in previous relationships. There is a large age gap, and obviously a lingering power dynamic, since our relationship has always been professor-student, and I know this doesn't look great. So is it a terrible idea to give this a shot? Am I being a bad feminist if I pursue this? And is a power dynamic something that can change? A good feminist, as far as I'm aware, allows herself to be attracted to the people to whom she's attracted and acts on those attractions when and where appropriate. This is a former professor. You're 10 years out of college. He has no power over you, although he has helped you out uh, professionally and, and, and helped you get a foothold in your career. Your career is yours. You have held the positions that he helped you obtain through your own skill. And unless he's in a position to destroy you, if the relationship should go south, unless going into the relationship, you would worry that if it didn't work out that, you know, he could retaliate in some way and therefore you wouldn't feel safe in the relationship. You wouldn't feel safe exiting it. Then obviously don't date him. But if you're attracted to him and he has no power over you and, and, intellectually you find him uh, appealing you're intellectually drawn to him in such a way that you have erotic feelings for him go the fuck for it go date him go hang out with him if you feel a little squicky about the fact that over the last few years he harbored uh romantic feelings for you that he didn't share address that bring that up you know did he have ulterior motives over the last few years of your interactions or perhaps over the entirety of your connection or your relationship. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. If it's only been the last few years and he didn't disclose right away, well, maybe he was hoping as so many crushes and attractions do, it would just run its course and burn itself out and he didn't feel right sharing it with you. And then when it didn't run its course and it didn't burn itself out, he reached a point where he 
wanted to share it to you. Over the last few years where you may or some may feel he had ulterior motives, he may have had the best motives. He may have been doing what a lot of people would have advised him to do under the circumstances, which was to keep his mouth shut and to hope it passed, which would be to keep his mouth shut and hope the crush abated in time. Well, when it didn't, he said something. He didn't say something when you were 19. He didn't say something when you were his student. He didn't say something at a stage in your life where a letter of recommendation from him would make or break your career. You're established. You guys have maintained this friendship. You're no longer dependent on him. He has no power over you. And now he's said something. And it sounds like it's possible you may have feelings for him too. For goodness sake, if you, your feminism, if feminism as you define it doesn't allow you to fuck this dude under those circumstances, go be a bad feminist and fuck this dude. Hi, Dan. This is female, 30 years old, recently got out of a 10-year relationship with my college sweetheart, started dating when we were 19. And if I had listened to your podcast sooner, I would have ended this relationship myself years ago. I always felt the relationship was off, and now I see, after listening to you, among a few other things, that we were sexually incompatible, and that that is a perfectly good reason to end a relationship. So we both grew up in conservative Catholic households, but internalized it very differently. I'm very sexually adventurous, but curious into certain kinks like consensual non-consent, thinking, rough sex, exhibitionism, role play. To me, sex and love are two very different things. And his definition, you know, he was the definition of vanilla. He couldn't separate love and sex. And it just wasn't, it just always was a problem. And we get married at 29 years old. And within three months of getting married, he actually called it off in a very brutal, accusatory way, blaming me for his inadequacies, really mind-fucking me and trying to make me feel like, you know, I was responsible for him not knowing who he was. It was really brutal. And... Side note, within three days, he was dating somebody else, and it was it was really traumatic, to be honest. So the only person I'd ever really trusted really violated my, my trust. Now I'm left to redefine myself completely, who I am at 30 years old, and I want to have a free and happy life and live according to my own values and be exactly who I am, but I'm a little scared. I feel like I'm coming out of the closet into completely uncharted territory. I'm emotionally sensitive after this experience. I have some trust issues with myself and others. And I'm also afraid for my physical safety as, you know, I'm a hundred pound, five foot tall female. And I've gotten myself into some situations where I'm testing the waters that could end up being a little dangerous. And I also think there's just a lot of careless and inconsiderate people out there. So I don't know how to proceed, how to test the waters, how to push out these boundaries. I don't think I fit in any one specific community. So any advice that you have would be, very helpful. Sexual incompatibility, a good reason to end a relationship. Sexual compatibility, something that should be prioritized at the start. And you can't prioritize sexual compatibility if you don't know what it is that you like sexually and enjoy sexually. Some people know and have a really good idea of who they are sexually and what works for them sexually very early in life. For others, it's a process and that unfolds and is revealed to them while they're having relationships and sexual experiences. And so I think it's really important for people to give that time. That's why I think it's generally a bad idea to get married at 19 or 20 because even if you know who you are sexually and what you want and you feel that this relationship is sexually compatible, what if the person that you're marrying at 19 or 20 or 25 
is not like you, is one of those people who who they are sexually, what they need, what they want, what works for them. Their erotic imagination is, is the – they're the kind of person that unfolds more slowly and is revealed more slowly and over time. And what was or what felt like a sexually compatible relationship at 20, you learn at 28 and sometimes three kids later, isn't a sexually compatible relationship. Somebody forwarded me a tweet, a conversation that was happening on the internet that I hadn't been tagged into, so I didn't jump in, where there were some people saying that I think sexual compatibility is the only thing that matters. And if the relationship isn't sexually compatible, it should be burned to the ground. And I don't believe that. I think it is one of the things that we should prioritize alongside emotional compatibility, alongside life goals, alongside shared religious values. It needs to be up there with all these other things that we are praised for and encouraged to prioritize while we are not encouraged to prioritize sexual compatibility because that makes you some sort of deranged sex monster. That's why so many of the questions I get at the podcast are basically everything about the relationship is wonderful and we love each other. We're best friends. But the sex is terrible and has always been terrible and isn't getting better and what can we do? And the answer is you can – get out of this fucking relationship, not have gotten into this fucking relationship, have structured the relationship in such a way where sexual exclusivity wasn't a part of it, where if this person met all of your emotional and social needs, wanted what you wanted out of life, but the sex didn't work, you could acknowledge that and both of you seek sexual fulfillment elsewhere outside of the relationship. So I don't think it's the only thing that matters, but it is a thing that matters very much. And the proof is in the letters and calls that I get and the couples who wind up in divorce court and the proof is also in the couples who wind up in couples counselors' offices talking about this problem, that they are sexually incompatible. All right, that was a really long rant and not an answer to your question. How do you prioritize your safety when you are interested, you know, suddenly single and 30 and relatively inexperienced and you're interested in DS play, you're interested in consensual non-consensuality, you're interested in some force sexual domination, some power play in your sexual relationships and you're a five-foot-tall, 100-pound woman. Well, you have to take it slow and you have to vet very carefully. I think it would be in your best interests to maybe get on FetLife and see what's out there in the community where you live uh, among the self-identified kinky guys, but also to get on the regular old dating apps, to get on your Tinders, to get on your Bumbles, to get on your okay Cupids, and just date. And then when you have those conversations after establishing sexual interest, maybe after establishing a good sexual rapport by having just vanilla sex, when you get to the laying your kink cards on the table conversations, you can lay this out that you have ravishment fantasies, that you have fantasies about consensual non-consensuality, fantasies about force, fantasies about being taken. And then if this is someone that you've already established a rapport with and you feel good about and there's some trust there, you allow for, you consent to, you negotiate some play and incorporate it into your sex that involves that kind of dynamic. And if they can do that small thing, maybe you add a slightly medium-sized thing and you work your way up. Baby steps, they call it in Kinkland. You take baby steps. And with this person that you are growing together with into this kind of play – if it works for them and it works for you, great, Yahtzee. And if it doesn't, well, then this is someone that you are not, you've discovered, sexually compatible with. And as much as you may have enjoyed the vanilla sex that you had with them at the beginning of the relationship 
once you realize that the sex that you really want and the kind of relationship you really want isn't possible with this person, you end that relationship and move on. Hello, Dan. I am a 22-year-old queer male-type person from the Deep South doing a, some, a year abroad in Germany. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on intercultural dating, intercultural hooking up, what kind of tips you have for that. Um, I did a lot of intercultural training before coming here, but they seemed to skip over the point about how to get your fuck on with some foreigners, weirdly enough. Also, in regards to your lead for last week's episode, where you discussed how there would probably be a German word for the angst of watching the toilet seat fall as you, a penis haver, are peeing. That actually wouldn't be a problem in Germany because German men are taught from a young age to pee sitting down in a phenomenon known as Sitzpinken. Um, this is so widespread and to the point that my host father actually took me aside and have a, had a conversation with me about how I was, should be sitting down while peeing. So, unfortunately, a German word for the angst when the toilet seat starts to fall while peeing does not exist, but the Germans do have a word for the need for men, penis havers, to sit down while peeing. That is Sitzpinkeln. Yes, but the Germans wouldn't have a word for the need for men to sit while peeing if all men sat while peeing. It would just be men sat while peeing and you wouldn't need a, a word for that. It would just be a thing that men did without a word. I have been to German-speaking places. I've been to Germany. I've been to Austria. And you know what I've seen in a lot of bathrooms? I've seen a lot of signs reminding men to sit to pee. If all German and German-speaking men sat to pee, they wouldn't have to be reminded. It's not just visiting college students or young adults from America moving to Germany who are pulled aside and told to sit and pee. So it's not just American exchange students or new arrivals who need to be told to sit and pee. It seems, at least based on the signs I've seen in public restrooms and in many people's private bathrooms, reminding the penis havers in the bathroom to sit and pee, Germans themselves and Austrians themselves who have to be reminded to sit and pee. All right, to your question, you're in Germany. How do you get laid? Well, the same way you get laid here. You get online. There are dating apps. You get on Grindr. You get on Gay Romeo. You get on Recon. You get on the gay dating apps over there just like you would get on them over here. You also leave the house. There are gay bars in Berlin and Frankfurt and Hamburg and everywhere else. So it's the same two-pronged strategy that a young gay person would employ here in any city in America that you should be employing there. Get online. Be yourself, ask for what you want, use current pictures, but also put yourself out there, get out there in the world, go places where you're going to meet other young gay men or older gay men, depending on what kind of gay guys you're into in real life and in the flesh. Have fun. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Butterfly Tyne tweets, hey, fake Dan Savage, I listened to episode 685 and my take on the sacred birthday girl is that she probably doesn't want the caller in pictures of the event if it's not going to work out because he's going to South America for a year. Doesn't automatically mean she has another guy invited to the party. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Yeah, it doesn't automatically mean that. That was my hunch. I think I rolled that out as my hunch, but I stand by that hunch. 
Rachel Cunliffe tweets about the same caller. Hey, fake Dan Savage, that guy on the Savage Lovecast who's going traveling clearly didn't tell the girl how long he'd be gone. She doesn't want a guy at her birthday who misled her and then had the audacity to feign hurt and surprise. Wish you told him to grow up and stop being so entitled. Being vague. She goes on another tweet. Being vague with details to get what you want, sex, and then acting affronted when the person is hurt by it is classic gaslighting behavior. I've been there. Maybe he's clueless rather than abusive. Either way, not someone I'd want meeting my friends at my birthday party. And finally, progressive dancing queen tweets. When your friend is having relationship struggles and you immediately reply, call Dan. And y'all both know you meant at fake Dan Savage. I look forward to fielding your friend's question as soon as possible. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the woman in episode 685 whose husband's increasingly bad behavior has left her unsure about what to do. I felt compelled to pause the episode and call uh, like before it, uh, the episode's not even done and just tell her and really any other person that's in the situation that leaving will really, really hurt, but it'll be so much better for her and for her kids and for their family in the end. Um, a year and a half ago, I saw myself in a similar situation after excusing a decade of bad behavior and it truly broke me. But with a lot of therapy and with a good support system, I was able to build myself back up and I'm better now than I've been maybe in my whole life. Um, and this caller sounds like a smart, capable lady who's got her shit together and she doesn't need his bullshit. So, yeah, I wanted to offer emotional support from afar to her and to anyone else from me and from everyone else who's been in this situation because it sucks, but it, it does get easier and things will turn out so much better if she does. Dan, I'm calling about episode 685, where the woman's partner was using spit as lube, and she was getting a lot of yeast infections and UTIs despite her best efforts. I felt like she was describing my last relationship. After I broke up with my boyfriend, I told my doctor how many yeast infections I'd been having, and she tested me for urea plasma, which is not considered an STI, but is an infection that can be passed between people during sex. Um, it's treated with an antibiotic, which is great. Um, I also talked to my therapist who got me to realize that denying lube to a person who needs it to be comfortable during sex is abusive behavior. She also recommended boric acid suppositories, which I've started using, which are proven safe by the NIH, and they can kill everything in your vagina to give you a chance to recolonize with good bacteria. I hope that helps, and I hope you figure this out with your partner. Hi, Dan. I have a comment for your, the gal who didn't want the emotional labor that went into sugaring. She is in the wrong business. Sugaring is a paid-for girlfriend, and it's all about emotional labor. If she doesn't want to do all that extra stuff that goes along with the sex, she should be escorting. And like you said, it's the same. They're both sex work, and in the industry, we call sugaring escorting light. It's the same thing, but she's probably going to get paid for one hour, what she would, spending a whole day with a guy kissing his ego. And you're going to say, okay, your hour's up. I got to walk out and be done. Some girls hang out and chat for the hour. If the sex is done, I will do that kind of thing. But some girls don't. Some girls say the sex is done. All right, good. Nice seeing you. And be on her way. Sugaring is not for her. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Or even better, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Give the gift of the magnum Savage Lovecast by going to savagelovecast.com and clicking on Gift. If you want the gift to arrive on the day of whatever holiday you happen to be celebrating this year, you have to buy it on the day. Be sure to listen to Blabbermouth, the Stranger's Weekly News in Review podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders. I'm on most weeks popping off. If you like it when I pop off about politics, you will like Blabbermouth. And my Dirty Little Film Festival, Hump, is hitting the road in January with all new films for our 2020 spring tour from Albuquerque to Oakland to Providence and Pittsburgh. We are coming to a city near you. Go to humpfilmfest.com to learn more and get your tickets. And again, the acclaimed documentary series Couples Therapy is seeking couples in the greater New York City area to participate in a new season. Go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com for all the info. Follow me on Twitter at Savage. Follow Erica Moen on Twitter at Erica Moen. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>